Let thy grace, like a fetter, bind my wandering heart to thee. I had to, I had to Google what that definition of fetter was. It's a chain or a manacle used to restrain a prisoner, typically placed around the ankles. That's what he needs to put on my heart by his grace to bind my wandering heart to him. And he does that. Isn't that a beautiful thing that that God and his grace? That's why we can't sing enough about the grace, the amazing grace of God. Yet not I, but through Christ in me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and I pray as we open it now that your Holy Spirit would illumine us, help us to understand it. Um, If my brother Joel is the most unexpected missionary, I am the most unexpected Christian and pastor. I have no right in and of myself to stand here and proclaim your word to these people. But by your grace, you've called us unto yourself. You've given us your word as your instructions. And the only way we can ever begin to grasp what you have to say to us today is if your Holy Spirit takes the word and brings it home to my heart and to our hearts. So we are at your mercy and ask you to move in this place. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd like you to take your Bibles and turn to Acts chapter 6 with me. We are doing kind of a flyover of the first century church and just kind of getting a feel for what it was like to, to be in the early church um, as, as we have here in the, in, the, in the book of Acts for us. Uh, we come to a, a very... Um, critical passage in the book of Acts. And, um, and I share this illustration as we begin, that when, when a certain Dallas, Texas church decided to split, each faction filed a lawsuit to claim the church property. A judge finally referred the matter to the higher authorities in their particular denomination, and a church court assembled to hear both sides of the case and ended up awarding the church property to one of the two factions. The losers withdrew and formed another church in the area. During the hearing, the church courts learned that the conflict had all begun at a church dinner when a certain elder received a smaller slice of ham than the child sitting next to him. You think I'm kidding. And sadly, this was reported to all the newspapers, so everyone read about this. Can you even believe that? I mean, I, I remember reading in a, in a, church, uh, a book on church conflict years ago about an incident where a couple visited a new church and they were so excited to be part of the church and, 
and, and they were at their first church potluck. And so they, they bring their dish in and um, they set it down on the, on, the, uh, you know, on the table so that the women of the church can organize things and, um, and go about their business as they kind of get their table set where they're going to sit down. And uh, the husband comes to his wife and he says, Hey, where, where's our uh, salad? Where, where's our uh, jello salad? I thought you made something for this. And, and she goes, Well, I did. I sat it up there. And so, so she goes to check on it. And just as they come to the window of the kitchen, she sees the, the queen of the kitchen taking the jello salad and actually ladling it down the garbage disposal. And she said, What are you doing? And the queen of the kitchen said, we don't use Cool Whip in this church. We use real whipped cream. Can you even believe this happens in churches? <laughs> you say, yeah, yeah, I can. Oh, Lord, by your grace, bind our wandering hearts to thee. <laughs> we, we have no hope <laughs> But by His grace, we do these kind of things. Uh, R. Kent Hughes says, The tiniest events sometimes cause the greatest problems. Again and again, a church has warded off a frontal attack only to be subverted from within. And so the gospel is on the move. Do you know that? That the gospel, the, the book of Acts is not finished. We are finishing the writing of the book of Acts as the gospel goes to the uttermost parts of the earth. And Paul says to the Ephesian elders in Acts 20, kind of our theme verse you could say, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. That's worth testifying to, the gospel of God's grace. What a beautiful way to put this good news that God has revealed to us in the Scriptures. Yeah. So, Acts is a story of God's grace flooding out to the world from the cross and resurrection of Jesus in Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. Nothing is more prominent in Acts than the spread of the gospel. We looked at Acts chapter 1 where Jesus told his disciples that I want you to wait in Jerusalem for the promise of the Father and when it comes, you will be clothed with power from on high, and you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the remotest part of the earth. So they waited, and they prayed. 120 of them gathered together in the upper room and waited. And on, on, in Acts chapter 2, we read, we talked about last time, this day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit fell upon the church and and, and they were all filled and empowered by the Holy Spirit. And Peter stands up and, and, and yeah, remember Peter with like the uh, foot-shaped mouth, right? He was, always putting, he was always saying the wrong things at the wrong times in the Gospels. And, uh, and so he stands up and he preached this incredible sermon. And the people 
by the Holy Spirit were cut to the quick and said, what should we do? And he says, repent and be baptized, each one of you, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive this promise of the Father, this Holy Spirit. And, and how many were saved on that day? 3,000 people. You've got to be kidding me. 3,000 people. And then uh, a little longer, uh, then, they, then they tend to a lame man and, and actually by the power of the Spirit heal him. And, um, and that creates a ruckus. And so they're like thrown in jail and, and, uh, and, then, and then miraculously released. And um, we're told in Acts chapter 4 that 5,000 more men uh, in addition to however many more thousand women and children came to faith in Jesus Christ. This, this church is exploding, for all from Jerusalem. started in Jerusalem. It's going to Judea, Samaria, to the remotest part of the earth. And so here's these concentric circles going out. All right? So the book of Acts is this bridge between the Gospels and the epistles, or the letters of the, of the apostles. And, um, and, and, and specifically... Luke's gospel is the first volume, Acts is the second volume, and you could say we're like the third volume uh, as the gospel is going out. And so this is what Luke started his gospel with, these words. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile, compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word, have delivered them to us. It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. Very little is known of this guy. That you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. So we could say that Theophilus, as, as he was the the audience, the one receiving Luke's gospel, he also, we see in Acts chapter 1, was the recipient of the book of Acts. And so in the same way that Dr. Luke was writing to give clarity, to give him confidence and certainty concerning the things that have been taught, this is what we can receive from the book of Acts. And so as we come to Acts chapter 6, we can ask ourselves the question, so what was the message to Theophilus, and what is the message to us? We've been looking at these progress reports, and we're up to Acts chapter 6. All right? Um, so let's look at it together. We're going to look at church dissension uh, and conviction. We're going to look at church delegation and devotion, and we're going to look at church addition and multiplication. All right? First point, church dissension and conviction. Follow along as I read our passage, Acts chapter 6, verses 1 to 7. Now at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. So the twelve summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, It's not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. Therefore, 
brethren, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. Verse 5, the statement found approval with the whole congregation. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. And these they brought before the apostles, and after praying, they laid their hands on them. Verse 7, the word of God kept on spreading, and the number of the disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem. And, by the way, a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. This is God's word to us. A healthy church will have servants eager to serve so that word work can occur. A healthy church will have servants who are eager to serve, eager to meet the needs of other people, so that God's word and the work of serving God's word can occur, and disciples will be multiplied. That's what we see in this passage. Uh, the setting is the newly formed, fast-growing church in Jerusalem, where there was a tension occurring between native Jews, who spoke Aramaic, and the minority Greek-speaking Jews who came from other countries. So at the diaspora, at the dispersion, Jews went to many other nations. And so they learned the culture, they learned the language of other nations, and then maybe they get laid in life and they think, hey, let's retire back in Jerusalem. And, and so they, they come back to Jerusalem, um, and, and maybe many of the, the husbands pass away, and so you have a number of widows who speak Greek, the common language of the day, not Aramaic or Hebrew. And, and so, uh, so they are already at a little bit of a disadvantage because the language barrier. And just interestingly enough, these were the widows who were being overlooked in the daily serving of food and care in the church. So let's just say that 3,000 souls, we don't say this, this is true, 3,000 souls, and then uh, men, uh, the, the number of, of people came to be about 5,000, so you add in women and children. Uh, chapter 5 says multitudes of men and women were constantly being added to the church. One writer says there must have been 20,000 in the Jerusalem church at this point, or a lot. So how hard is it? to care for the needs of everyone. How can leaders possibly do this by themselves? Was it by design that there was kind of like a cultural discrimination going on in the church so that certain widows 
I mean, to care for widows was part of the Old Testament law. This was, this was something that the leaders were, of course, to be doing. But why were these widows not being cared for? One writer says, this is the first serious organizational crisis in the church. The very delicate unity of the early church is in danger when we come to Acts chapter 6. And so, as one writer says, according to the Jewish Talmud, Pharisaism made little secret of its contempt for the Hellenists, these Greek-speaking Jews. They, they were frequently categorized by the native-born populace of Jerusalem as second-class Israelites. So, what we are seeing is clearly this could have been discrimination. This could have been certain people like purposefully being overlooked in the church. And so, a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Jews. And Dr. Luke gives us this detail in verse 1. So we have a tension, we have a conflict clearly arising. And and verse 2 says that the 12 summoned the congregation of the disciples. So the 12 apostles address this critical cultural issue by calling the church together to care for the widows and yet not compromise their calling to teach and preach the Word of God. I find it interesting that we see a repetition of the Word of God. We see it uh, in verse 2. It is not desirable for us to neglect the Word of God in order to serve tables. Verse 4, we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. And then verse 7, the Word of God kept spreading. So there's clearly an emphasis upon the need to keep the Word work going. It's not right, the ESV says. It is not right that we should give up preaching the Word of God to serve tables. It wasn't that serving tables was unimportant because they are dealing with this issue. But what was important is that we cannot, we cannot compromise the ministry of the Word. That's what we are learning very early on in the book of Acts. They were a Word-centered church. They were constantly continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching we looked at last time. In chapter 4, we see that, that when Peter and John were released from prison, they went to the, 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 the gathering of the disciples, and they were, they were praying together, and the place was shaken, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to what? Speak in tongues? No, they began to speak the Word of God with boldness. That's the power of the Holy Spirit. That's why it was given in the beginning, was for them to be His witnesses, speaking forth, being witnesses to the death and resurrection, the gospel of Jesus Christ. This was what the church was established upon. And so when the Spirit gives them strength and boldness, they just start speaking the Word of God with boldness. This is why the Apostle Paul, when he says in Ephesians 6, he says, I want you to pray for me, and I want you to pray for me that I'd speak the Word of God with boldness as I ought to speak. This is what we should pray for with the power of the Spirit. And so in Acts chapter 6, verse 2, we see that they, it is not right for us to give up the preaching of the Word of God. In, in, in verse 4, we'll devote ourselves to prayer in the ministry of the Word. In verse, in, in verse 6, the Word of God kept, 
kept on spreading. In chapter 12, the word of the Lord continued to grow and be multiplied. In verse 13, the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. Verse 9, chapter 19, the word of the Lord was growing. Why would Luke say the growth of the church using these words? Isn't that the most interesting way to describe the growth of a church? The word of God was spreading. What does that tell us about this first century church? They met people's needs. As a matter of fact, we just were looking earlier at chapter 2 and then again at chapter 4. We see that there was hardly a person with a need among them. They were so, so uh, like obsessed with caring for one another's needs. They'd sell all their possessions and give it to someone in need if they needed to. But now, we have some individuals in the church whose needs are not being met. And the apostles make this conviction, this declaration. Okay, we're going to get some people to care for that need, but it's not right that the Word of God be compromised. They were a Word-centered church. So, verse 3 says, Therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Spirit, And of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. So the church was commanded to select from among themselves seven godly men full of the spirit and of wisdom to serve the needs of the Greek speaking widows. Notice how important this need was that the apostles would put these high spiritual qualifications upon these servants. So you don't hey, would somebody go serve the Greek speaking widows? No. They said we want them to have a good reputation. We see in in 1 Timothy we see this word above reproach. Um the the these men should be men of integrity. Um they should be men and I don't know why they said men, because in 1 Timothy 5, when Paul is instructing Timothy about caring for widows, he's saying certain women to be put on a list, and don't put them on the list unless they have these qualifications. And so, for whatever reason, they wanted men to care for the serving of the tables of these Greek-speaking widows, men of good reputation, men full of the Holy Spirit, who were under the power and control of the Spirit, and were full, full of wisdom. We see a little bit further down that, that one of the men chosen, uh, Stephen, was a man full of faith as well as full of the Holy Spirit. And so, the presenting need was to be cared for by spiritually qualified people, but the apostles were not to be distracted from serving the Word by serving tables. Very interesting. Look at this with me. Verse 1 overlooked in the daily serving of food. Um, Verse 2, it's not desirable for for us to neglect the Word of God in order to serve tables. Verse 4, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry, literally, service of the Word. There's a word, there's kind of a weird word play going on here. The word is where we get our word deacon, diakonos. 
diaconeo. Uh, and, and so this is why some people say, are these the first deacons? It isn't, we aren't told that specifically, but clearly their role was service, serving tables. And the apostle says, we can't be the ones doing that because we are serving the word. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? It's like, like coming to a fine restaurant and setting the word before you. We are feeding on the word. And it's, the apostle says, we're going to get people, spiritually qualified people to care for this need of serving tables, but we're going to keep serving the word. How will the church grow if it isn't a word-centered church? The church was, the, the, the word of God was the life blood of the church. That's why Luke says the word of God, the word of the Lord kept spreading, kept multiplying. So this ministry of the word, we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry and service of the word this prayer-filled ministry of the Word. First Timothy 5 says, The elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. And so there's this idea of toilsome sweat and labor in, in uh, word work. That's why I call it word work. Um, we need to see that. If you're a Sunday school teacher, if, if you are leading a small group or an ABF uh, teacher teaching at the big house, uh, teaching in your Bible study groups. We need to see that it is work that we do with the Word in order to serve it to one another. We need to take this seriously. And notice that these seven men all had Greek names, and so they were very likely Hellenists themselves that were put in charge of caring for these Greek-speaking women. Maybe they spoke the language. Maybe they knew the culture. And yet it is kind of a foreshadowing in the sense that chapter 7 is going to be all about Stephen and then his life will be done. Uh, He preaches a powerful message and then they just stone him and so he's the first martyr. And then all of a sudden Philip comes on the scene and he's preaching the gospel to Samaritans and this guy has a heart for other cultures. And, and, And all of a sudden the Lord says, I want you to go on this desert road. And he goes, well, all this is happening right here with the Samaritans. Why should I leave this? He says, nope, I want you to go on the desert road. And he goes, he obeys the Lord on the desert road, and who does he run into? An Ethiopian. Many believe that, that as he shared this gospel with him, uh, as he was reading Isaiah 53, and he connected it to Christ, just as we are trying to do here in the Scriptures, that the Ethiopian came to know Jesus and went back to his own country, and maybe he was the first believer in North Africa. Philip! Right here. He's the second one listed. The first two men in this list were men who had a heart for the gospel, had a heart for people of, of other cultures, and, and God was, words, his word was spreading. Now, then finally, um, we see the church um, multiplying in, in, in verse 7. They, they laid their hands on him in verse 6 and uh, commissioned them to this task. Uh, this was no small task. They treated it seriously. And then it says, verse 7, the word of God kept on spreading and the number of the disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests became obedient. 
to the faith. And so, what could easily have resulted in a church split already in Acts 6 was used by the Spirit to involve more people in ministry and to spread God's Word and increase the number of disciples. This is a beautiful example. Dr. Luke recorded this not only for Theophilus, but for us to be instructed and to be given confidence that God, by His Spirit, under the power of His Word, can unify a church and hold it together in the midst of our diversity. I mean, if left to ourselves, of course we're going to split the church. Look at Satan's attack on this early church. Peter and John were arrested in chapter 4. And then all of a sudden, the gospel spreads, and 5,000-some-plus were added. And then, and then Ananias and Sapphira, and, and they're deceiving. And, 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 and so all of a sudden, Ananias drops dead. And Sapphira drops dead because they were lying. They were, they were living lives of deceit. Donald Gray Barnhouse, the great Phil- uh, preacher in Philadelphia, once said, you know, if God dealt with the church today like he dealt with it in Acts chapter 5, we might as well have a morgue in the basement and a mortician on staff. We'd all be dead. Ananias and Sapphira, a great fear came upon the church and multitudes were added to the church after this sin was revealed in the church. Religious leaders oppose. They they throw the apostles in jail. They interrogate them. They said, whatever you do, do not talk about this name, Jesus. We don't want to hear anything else about the name Promise us that you will never, ever say anything more about the name. We've got to obey God rather than men. And so they continued to speak about it, and they threatened to kill him. They flogged him and warned him, and they went on their way rejoicing. And then we come to chapter 6, and the first sign of dissension within the church surfaces. They deal with the need, they give priority to the word, and the disciples continue to increase. Duh! Why should it surprise us? When Satan does not succeed in stopping the church from, with, a, with a frontal assault, he attacks from within. This usually happens subtly. An invitation is not sent. A job goes unnoticed. A critical comment is overheard. Jealousy over something that really does not even matter. And when the murmuring begins, the devil smiles. Is the word of God, uh, it is the word of God that is working through the people of God that transforms lives. And yet, if I were to ask myself, what's the surprise in this passage? <laughs> well, Maybe that the church survived, but also, verse 7, that that, that a great many of the priests were becoming obedient. The priests could very easily have been the one opposing the apostles in the early chapters. And maybe they saw how they dealt with this issue and that God's word uh, pierced their heart and they came to faith in Jesus Christ. I don't know. 
But it seems like a little bit of a surprise to me that even priests were becoming obedient to the faith. A great many of them. So they were a word-centered church. Let me just ask you a question. What ultimately is at stake when a church splits? I mean, come on. So, so it affects our numbers. It affects our budget. But what, what ultimately is at stake when Christians can't get along? Talk to me. What is at stake? The witness of the gospel is at stake. You know it is. It's the word of God that we preach. It's the word of God that we seek to live. And Satan knows he's got a victory if he can compromise the word. I don't, keep, I don't care what culture a person comes from. They can see right through it. Of course it doesn't work. I didn't think it did. I'll go on believing and worshiping a false god. That's what's at stake, brothers and sisters. Do you think that when people leave the church... There's rejoicing. Do you really think that we sit around saying, about time? God have mercy. It's the name of Jesus Christ that can be tarnished if we aren't careful. I so respect these seven verses right here. One, it gives me great hope that as Jesus said, hey, listen, I'm building my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The gospel goes right on impacting lives because the power of the gospel is what transforms lives. That's why we must be a word-centered church. Everything we do needs to be based on this inspired and inerrant word of God that's like a like a sword. Hebrews 4 tells us, doesn't it? It's like a two-edged sword. And it's able to judge the thoughts and intentions of my heart and your heart. Hebrews 4 says that our hearts are laid bare before God. And the Word of God exposes deceit. It exposes sin. It exposes pride. It exposes my heart and it exposes your heart. But may we never, ever forget what is ultimately at stake when Christians can't get along. Where's the gospel in this passage? Well, the gospel is that the word of God is powerful. We're told in, John, in Romans 10, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. People can come to faith just by hearing God's word, the power of it, the spirit using it. And so we keep sharing it. When the Philippian jailer was hearing Paul and Silas singing in their jail cell in Acts 16. 
And all of a sudden the gates open and he's ready to kill himself. They said, no, we're, we're right here. Don't, don't harm yourself. And he goes, what, what should I do? And they said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. It's that simple. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. His life, his death, his resurrection is enough for any sinner who would come to a place of humility and trust in Jesus Christ. And if you're here today and you do not know him, I'm telling you, all through the book of Acts, we see one life at a time being transformed for eternity through the word of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. Number two, what ministry in the church is God calling you to serve in so that, the, so that his word, the word work, continues to occur so that individuals can be freed up to pray and, and pour over the word so that the word can be faithfully served in all kinds of contexts, children, teens, adults, because it's the word of God that transforms lives. It's the lifeblood of the church. What ministry in the church is God calling you to serve in? Um, whom we may put in charge of this task. It was a task. It was a way of serving. It was significant enough that they had spiritual qualifications that these individuals had to have in order to serve these Greek-speaking widows. This was no small thing. Every need is important. Every need. And so everyone needs to be commissioned. 1 Peter 4 says, Each one of us has received a special gift from God, and we are to employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God, the multicolored grace of God. It has all kinds of shades of color. And we have been gifted to show certain colors to certain people at certain times. It's the manifold, multicolored grace of God, and we're stewards of it. Whoever speaks, do it as one speaking the utterance of God. Whoever serves, do it as one serving by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So it's all, it all centers back in Him. He gives the gifts. He uses people, broken people, to serve other broken people, and He gets the glory. That's how it's supposed to work. Amazing. And the gospel goes forth. So maybe there's an area that God by His Spirit's uh, tugging on you about. I don't know what it is. But you listen to Him and you act upon it. Is. So you, don't wait to be asked. You know, everybody says, oh, I didn't get, nobody asked me. No, no, listen, listen, listen. It's not about that. If the Spirit of God is prompting you to serve, you in obedience to the Spirit serve. Yeah, ask maybe somebody, you know, I'm being prompted to serve in this area. What, what is there for me to do? It's awesome. Ask somebody that question. How's God's word being used in our church and, and in your life to multiply disciples? The word of God kept spreading. The number of disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem. This church could have been toast. This church could have split right down the middle. There was all kinds of Jews coming in from other nations speaking. They were a minority, but they were a strong minority. 
in Jerusalem. And, uh, and so they deal with the need in a very specific way, and they continue to give priority to prayer and the ministry of the Word, and the church continues to grow. It's, it's not rocket science like we said last time. Jesus prayed, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. This is what changes us, each of us. So Kent Hughes, uh, hang on to that just for a second. Um, so um, this is a great, um, great illustration. Um, one hot day, a family was traveling down the highway between towns of Jones, Johnstown and Jamestown. I don't know if this is a fictional thing. Stopped at Farmer jo- Jones's place to ask for a drink of water. And when he gladly gave it to them, um, he just asked the, the family, where, where are you headed? Uh, we're moving from uh, Johnstown to Jamestown to live. Uh, can you tell us what the people are like there? Well, what kind of people did you find where you, where you lived before? Farmer Jones asked. Oh, they were the worst kind. Gossipy, unkind, indifferent. We were glad to move away from there. Well, afraid to tell you that you'll find the same kind of people in Jamestown. Next day, another car stops. Same conversation. Where, 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 are, you, where are you moving from? Uh, we're moving down to Jamestown. Uh, what, what kind of neighbors will we find there? Do you know, Farmer Jones? He says, well, what kind of neighbors did you have where you lived before? Oh, they were the very best. So kind, considerate, broke our hearts to have to move away from them. Well, you'll find exactly the same kind again. And then our Kent Hughes says, When believers are unhappy and begin to murmur, the first place to look for the problem is in their own hearts. Christians who were happy at their last church or town or job are probably or they're unhappy, will be unhappy where they are now. If they feel they have just cause for criticism, by all means they should express it to the right people in the appropriate way. But they must avoid murmuring, gossiping, and must be willing to be part of the solution. And um, and so I don't think it's any coincidence that we are in Acts 6, the the second progress report that we're looking at in the book of Acts. That's our flyover, right? Worship team, as you come. Um, so this week I was at a, um, at a pastor's workshop in, in, um, in Urbandale. Uh, it is a Simeon Trust workshop. And, and each November they, they put on a workshop. Uh, all kinds of pastors, church leaders come together. I don't know, maybe 90 to 100. And, um, and it's made up of three things. Um, they're three-legged stool, they call it, okay? So there's biblical exposition. There's like three sermons that we get to hear. Um, there's uh, instruction, so there's kind of some lecture time, maybe five or six different lectures on, on handling the Scriptures well, different principles to use in interpreting the Scriptures. Um, the same, same principles that we introduce in our first principles course that we have with Simeon too. Um, and, then, and then there's small group time where you meet with other pastors, you present a couple different passages. We were in the book of Acts, and, um, and so I had a couple passages to present. But at the beginning of our small group, the, the leader just said, okay, let's everybody just go around, introduce themselves, and uh, where are you from, uh, and then maybe just one prayer request. And, uh, and so I, I just was, uh, 
I just felt led that I, I just needed to have my brothers just praying for us as a church and and that we had just recently had uh, some very beloved individuals uh, choose to leave the church. And, um, and if you'd just pray, pray for that, that would be awesome. Um, I was not prepared for what ensued in my small group. So the leader of our group said, Oh, yeah, over the last couple of years we've had the hardest time. I, I thought our church was done. Uh, we had key leaders leave. Uh, I had individuals come up to me and say, listen, if you don't make me an elder, I'm leaving the church and, and I'm taking a bunch of people with me. And they did. And he said, I didn't think our church would survive. And then another pastor across the table looks at me and says, we're going through what you're going through right this very minute. And then a brother caught me out, out, uh, in, out while I was in the big room uh, sitting by myself. And, and he came up and he goes, listen, I knew this guy in college. And he said, he said listen, I, I, feel, I, I feel like you're burdened about something. He wasn't even in my group. He says, I feel like you're burdened about something. How can I pray for you? And I just shared briefly what, what I'd been going through and, and how hard as a pastor it is. And, and um and he said, oh my goodness, you need to talk to my pastor. He was an elder at a church uh, in Iowa. And, uh, and he said, you need to talk to my pastor because when he came to our church, all kinds of people left the church. And, and, and we wondered if we could even keep going. And uh, listen, do we know what is ultimately at stake when the church has problems within and possibly even splits or divide? Do we know what's at stake do we know who's behind many of the problems that we experience and we think there's no way we can work through this? Listen, by the grace of God, we've got to work through them. We've got to work through them because the gospel, the testimony of the gospel is what is at stake. My heart is burdened. I, I, I just want to say that as just one of the pastors here, listen, I... I'm a man with feet of clay, and I, I do not lead well many times. Many times I do not. I have had opportunity to confess my own faults publicly, privately, and I have no problem doing that as the Spirit shows me. Please know that I, I want to. I want to be a man of integrity. I want to be a person with a good reputation. But I just got to say, uh, I'm, I'm coming to see that the enemy is attacking the church, okay? The big C church. Not just our little church. You know, that's not the issue. The issue is each individual life matters. The issue is that the gospel is what is most important. The name of Jesus and my heart needs to be gripped by that name so that I will do whatever I can do to protect that name. Protect it. Because the gospel is what's at stake. All right. I've shared my rant. I've confessed my soul because I'm burdened about the church. I, I know many churches go through issues. I just heard it this week. This is, this is our church. This is, this is my family. If your marriage was under attack, I hope you'd, I hope you'd get help. 
don't go your separate ways thinking it'll all be better if we just don't see each other again. Nobody wins. Nobody wins. Well, maybe the enemy wins, but nobody wins. We must work out our differences. And if this passage, under the inspiration of the Spirit, teaches us anything, I can do that. You can do that. We can do that. For God's glory. For the spreading of His Word. For the advancement of His gospel and His kingdom. Let's stand together and worship.